All right, today we're going to start with the 95th Psalm. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully, joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is great, uh, the great God and the King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Heavenly God, we thank you for sending Jesus, who when we place our trust in him, we do enter your rest. And we don't have any fear of uh, retribution from you in the future because of that. We thank you for the security which is found in him. We thank you for the chance to meet out here today in this beautiful location. We thank you for everything you've done for us in the week behind. And we look forward to good things from your hand of open grace in the week ahead. Lord, please bless this service and uh, please help what I say to be proper. Uh, of course, today is a, an issue that is something that uh, comes from your mind, and it is something that is uh, debated between people. Help me to be polite to those who I disagree with, but to uh, stand firm on what I do believe so that these people here at least see what I believe and why, and so that they can make a, a right choice in their future as to what they want to believe concerning this very delicate issue. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory you're due in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. on to that. Let's see. Okay, just a few announcements today. Um, I uh, made, I did make an offer on a building this past week, and um, we uh, got an answer back from him with a counter offer. and then just this morning, about an hour before coming out here, I made a counter-counter offer. So we're kind of working things out, and uh, hopefully we'll have a place to meet because even, uh, you know, it's the winter time and we got the sun burn through the fog and where we were meeting over there is going to be punishingly hot in 20 minutes and by the time we get done here it'll probably be pretty warm as well so uh, I'm looking forward to having a building to meet in but uh, anyway um, while we're out here um, always looking for inviters of others I mentioned that from time to time if you know somebody that would benefit from uh, uh, attending church on the beach or church in the building um, just uh, let them know what type of preaching they can expect and uh, that's what we'll be doing here Baptism, as always, if you've never been baptized, and I think everybody here has been, um, willing to do that right behind me any day of the week. And um, let's see here. Paul stole, I did hear from him, our missionary from Japan. They are back in America. And uh, so I'm not even going to pray for them as our missionaries anymore. I'm just going to uh, compliment him on him and his wife Elaine on a job well done over the past year. And uh, I anticipate they'll be back here very soon, and it'll be good to see them. And today is our 56th sermon in Genesis. And today is going to run exceedingly long on the sermon, and so I'm not going to do a New Testament reading, nor am I going to read another psalm before the uh, sermon. Uh, I want to make sure that everybody gets out of here at a reasonable amount of time. But despite the short number of verses, only five verses that we're going to review today, we could actually talk well into the night and uh, into tomorrow and not touch on what we need to get through about these this issue. But uh, it, it, it's, it's a wonderful issue, but it's something that people will debate. 
And uh, so I'm going to give you different opinions and uh, let you go and study your Bible and think these things through for yourself as well. But uh, today's uh, sermon is Genesis 25, verses 19 through 24. It's called Divine Election. The older shall serve the younger. All right. And before we get into that, as always, I'd like to give you this day in history. And I have just a few things to to give us from this day in history today. The first is that on this day in 1759, and it's 6 January, by the way, in case you didn't know that, in 1759, George Washington married Martha Dandridge Custis. And I have no commentary. I just thought it was a nice thing to add in. Um, On this day in 1838, which would have been exactly 175 years ago today, Samuel Morse publicly demonstrated the telegraph for the very first time. And if you think about the innovations that have happened since he did that up until to this day, you know, Daniel 12 uh, verse 4 speaks about knowledge increasing in the end times. And uh, we look at uh, how Paul, if he wanted to go to Rome, would get onto a wooden ship. They'd raise the sails and sail over to Rome and then they'd drop the sails and they'd walk off onto a wooden gangplank and onto the shore. And uh, that was the same all the way up until the 1800s. And since then, things just changed almost geometrically in, in uh, shipping and communications and, uh, you know, just every aspect of our life. And uh, it was only just 175 years ago that he tapped out his first Morse codes. In 1900, in New India, it was reported that millions were dying from starvation. And, uh, of course, uh, people think that they're going to defeat famines and plagues when Jesus says in uh, Matthew 24 verse 7 that you know these things are going to continue and they're only going to get worse famines and plagues and wars and all these things pestilences Um, so don't be surprised when you see this type of thing in the news it's been going on since uh, the beginning and it will continue to go on Um, in 1912 New Mexico became the 47th state of the United States of America And uh, I went to New Mexico as I traveled to all 50 states to preach at all 50 capitals two years ago. And I was really disappointed uh, in the uh, capital there. There were only a couple of states that I really felt unwelcomed at, and that was one of them. Uh, New Mexico is a very nice state, and the people are very friendly. But Santa Fe itself is a little bastion of liberalism. And um, they they were really stuffed shirt people. You walk by them, and they just ignored you. It was... uh, uh, you know, most of the capitals you go in and the people just welcome you. Where are you from? And they just want to know everything about you. And they want to just speak and have a good time. And it wasn't that way in New Mexico. And it's a very odd looking building. It's not your typical capital type building. It's, it's just a round building. And so when you walk in the building, you walk around the outside in the circle. And if you want to go into the House of Representatives, you go in and it's shaped like a, a pie, pie wedge, you know. But uh, it's just this odd-looking building from some odd thinker that uh, is probably as liberal as the people that work in it. It was very sad. But that was 1912. Then in 1942, um, the first commercial around-the-world airline flight took place. And that was uh, Pan Am Airlines. They uh, were the first ones to actually make an around-the-world trip. And uh, in 1991, which was exactly 49 years later, they were bankrupt. So these great achievements, uh, and I will attribute that to unions. Um, It may have been uh, something else, but the unions tend to uh, uh, start out with a good purpose and they end up destroying things. And so, uh, and we're seeing that again and again with these larger companies that are just being uh, driven to death by unions. We lost the Twinkie a while ago, and then I think maybe they renegotiated, but uh, that's what unions do. Um, 
1945, on this day, the uh, Battle of the Bulge ended, and it wasn't long ago that we announced that the Battle of the Bulge had began. So uh, in the short time that the uh, Battle of the Bulge went on, 130,000 Germans and 77,000 Americans were casualties. And you think of all of the death and all of the people that casualty doesn't just mean death. It can mean, you know, being out of the combat for whatever reason. But uh, that's uh, 207,000 people that, uh, you know, they'll never put their boots on again. Maybe they will never see their mom or their, you know, their children or whatever. It's a very sad thing. But uh, uh, war reminds us that we are living in a fallen world. Um, in 1952, Peanuts. Charles Schultz's uh, little cartoon came out for the first time. It was syndicated in papers across the U.S. And uh, then finally in 1963, really great stuff, The Wild Kingdom with, uh, what was his name, Marlon Perkins. He uh, premiered on NBC, and I remember growing up there, watching it with my brother and my mom and uh, other people, Marlon Perkins and Wild Kingdom and Mutual of Omaha, as a matter of fact. So uh, there you go. That's this day in history from uh, 6 January. A couple friends of mine have their birthdays today, and uh, uh, so if I doubt if they're watching, but if they are, then they can uh, know that I'm thinking of them and wishing them a happy birthday. My uncle has his birthday as well. But uh, anyway, here we go. We're going to get right into the sermon now. No New uh, Testament reading and no sermon text. Um, this is Genesis 25, verses 19 through 24. Five verses. And um, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 41 years, uh, 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And you know, I said that we were going to uh, go through verse 24. I guess I will. I'll probably start with that next week as well, but I'll read it. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. Probably I'll use that for next week's sermon, though. Um, the uh, main part of the sermon is actually just on what the Lord told Rebecca directly. And uh, we'll get into that right away. And I wanted you to know that before I do, that... Um, this is a very, very touchy subject, and it deals with doctrine. Unfortunately, it looks like everybody here has been here, and you know what you can expect from me as far as doctrine is concerned. But uh, it is uh, something that if you neglect to understand this, then you very well may have a completely different perception of how God deals with you. And that will affect your entire walk with Jesus Christ. So even if you disagree with me, I hope you will listen to the different views and try your best to understand this. And if necessary, come back and watch the video again. Before I started these Genesis sermons, I did a, a whole bunch of sermons on just doctrine. It was right here. It was when we were having the afternoon services. And I preached on heaven. I preached on hell. I preached on the Holy Spirit, Christology, the rapture, the Trinity, and so on. And the reason why I did that is because I want people to know what I believe and why. And that way they can make a foundational understanding of I do want to attend church on the beach or I don't want to attend church on the beach. Because without doctrine, you know, it, my word just becomes whatever. In other words, you just believe whatever my word is. And one of the things that I did not 
preach on during those doctrine sermons was the doctrine of election and predestination. Today's passage, which you saw how short it was, is used by Paul in the book of Romans to explain this exact concept. And so because this is where he is going with that particular concept, with these verses, that's where we're going to go to. Unfortunately, and I mean this sincerely, it's become very common in churches to reject doctrine in preaching and teaching and giving life application sermons. That's all that you hear. You just get these life application sermons, but without the doctrine introduced into them. And I believe that this is just the standard in most churches in America today. I was in a church right here in Sarasota, Florida last year. And when I was in there, I won't give the name of it, but uh, I was attending. And when I was in there, the pastor actually said that he didn't think that it was good for people to even argue church doctrine, much less preach on it. And the reason why is he said that it divides the church. And when I heard this, I was absolutely stunned. And in fact, I was appalled. The Bible, this book right down here, is first and foremost a book of doctrine. I mean first and foremost. I mentioned a couple of the things, the rapture, Christology, the Trinity. What you believe about God and his nature is found in the Bible. You can discern certain things from nature, but when it comes right down to it, yeah, do you believe that Jesus was created or do you believe that he was God incarnate? And that is found in the Bible. It's not found anywhere else. All of these things come down to doctrine. If you don't have proper doctrine, then you will come out with things like cults. You'll come out with neurotic people. You'll come out with egotistical leaders. If one does not understand doctrine, then whatever the pastor says is by default the church doctrine. Instead of the Bible, it is what he says that matters. And if you don't think that this is important, you will. I assure you, because when a family member or a good friend of yours puts a gun in their mouth and they pull the trigger and they commit suicide, who are you going to ask questions about? You're going to go to your pastor, whether it's me or somebody else. You will go to them and you'll say, I need to know about this situation. And I know this personally because I get at least three, maybe four emails every single year since I met the Lord of people asking me, tell me about this. Tell me what happened to this person. They come to me and I'm not even their pastor. And the reason why is because they know they can't go to their pastor because their pastor gives life application sermons and has no idea what the Bible actually says about these issues. And so they call me and I give them the advice and I tell them what the Bible says on these issues. Who's going to counsel you if you have marital troubles? Someone's opinion or are you going to go to the Bible? And in fact, if you go to a person that holds to the Bible, such as Dennis Rainey of Family Life Today, he's going to give you one opinion and somebody else is going to give you another opinion right from the Bible and they will contradict each other because people don't take the time and the effort in their discipline, whether it's marital counseling or whatever, to understand what the Bible is trying to tell you. If you're a Christian and you do something terribly wrong, suppose one of you gets a gun and you intentionally kill somebody. You're already a saved believer. Can you lose your salvation by doing this? I have to tell you that today's topic, if it is misunderstood, will lead you to believe that you may have actually lost your salvation. Or maybe you can't even know that you're saved. Can you know? If you don't have doctrine, you actually have nothing. Calling on Jesus Christ and getting saved is not so important if you can suddenly lose your salvation by something you've done. Here's a statement which was posted on Facebook very recently. 
A girl from Trinidad, a friend of mine, emailed this to me. She, she said, can you tell me what this guy's trying to say and what is correct? And uh, I uh, gave her my answer on this. It was submitted by, I believe, a pastor, and he is giving a thesis on different doctrines of the Bible, which deal exactly with what we're talking about today. Here's what he said, and I want to see if you can see where the error in his thinking lies. He says, if you seriously believe that Christ actually paid the penalty due for your sins, in other words, you believe that Christ died for you and paid your sin penalty, he says there are only three possibly consistent conclusions. The first is everyone for whom Christ died will be saved, but he did not die for every individual. That's a doctrine known as Calvinism. Christ Jesus did not die for everybody. He only died for certain people that will be saved. The second one, everyone for whom Christ died will be saved, and he did die for every, every individual, which is universalism. That means everybody goes to heaven by default. Christ died for everybody, everybody's going to heaven. I will address this right now. That is a heresy. Nobody except a heretic will believe that. Christ, whether he died for everybody or whether he didn't die for everybody, not everybody is saved. So we're gonna drop that one out right now and we'll just move on. But his third option, everyone for whom Christ died will not necessarily be saved. In other words, Christ died for everybody, but not everybody's gonna be saved. And so his answer is, in which case, the only possible conclusion is that Christ's sacrifice was imperfect. His atonement was not sufficient to save us. In other words, he blew it. Now, can you tell me what's wrong with that? I will give you the answer right now. It is what we call a false dilemma. The problem is that he leaves out a fourth option. The pers this person here, he didn't take time to think through the post or what is more likely, he ignored what is actually correct because his theology says that we do not have free will. Jesus dies and we do not have any choice in accepting him. Calvinism, which is what I'm gonna talk about mostly today, rejects that. You have no free will. You are saved by God's grace, whether you like it or not. The answer to this question and what I'm going to spend the next hour or so talking about is that Christ paid the penalty for all sins. Every person on earth, potentially. This is what we call unlimited atonement, and it is offered to all people. But only those who receive his substitutionary atonement will actually have those sins forgiven. This is what we call limited atonement actual. This is what the Bible teaches, that one must call on the Lord to be saved. Anyone can, but not actually everyone will. And my thought to you about this guy's post is, can you imagine, can you imagine a preacher saying that Christ didn't die for everybody? Can you imagine that? Pete, so much for Peter's words when he writes that the Lord isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a saving repentance and a knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can take that part of your Bible, rip it out right now if you're a Calvinist, because that doesn't mean what you think it means. As tedious as the second portion of this sermon might seem, I would ask you to pay very close heed to what has in his word concerning two children who fight in their mother's womb, which leads to God revealing their destinies before they're even born. Our text verse for today comes from Romans chapter 9, it's verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, 
but of God who shows mercy. Too often we forget that God is sovereign over his creation. And when we forget this, we tend to blame him for every bad thing that occurs and we call him unfair in how he deals with us. But just as a pot has no right to accuse the potter, we have no right to accuse our creator. He is God and we are man. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the generations of Isaac. This is verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. We now come to the eighth set of generations that are listed in the Bible. Last week, we saw those of Ishmael, which was a branch off of the main line leading to Jesus Christ. This genealogy of Isaac returns to that main line. So far, we have now seen uh, the following generations in the book of Genesis. We've seen the generations of the heavens and the earth, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of the sons of Noah, the generations of Shem, the generations of Terah, who is Abraham's father, and then last week we saw the generations of Ishmael. According to the layout and the structure of Genesis that we've already seen and that we will continue to see, this genealogy of Isaac will commence with the birth of his sons. However, in order for us to see the sovereignty of God, meaning that he is in control of all things, we're gonna first see a recap of how and when Isaac obtained his wife, Rebekah, and then after that, we will see a few insights of what happens before his children are born. The coming verses show us that God is completely in control of everything that happens. Just as he orchestrated the union of Isaac and Rebekah, he will choose when and how their children will be born, and he will show us once again the doctrine of divine election. Verse 19 continues, Abraham begot Isaac. These words right here are given to confirm that Isaac is the legitimate son and the chosen son of promise from Abraham. One thing that I would like you to personally think about concerning these two men, Abraham and Isaac, that we've seen so far, is how their lives resemble the figures that they represent. God the Father and God the Son. Abraham is the man of faith who forged his way into the unknown. He headed to the promised land. He conquered enemies. He lived in anticipation of his promised coming son. And when the son came, he obtained a wife for him. In so many ways, Abraham typifies God the Father. However, Isaac consented to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah, just as Jesus did. He is a man of patience. He's a man of obedience. He's a man of acquiescence, just as Jesus is. Abraham initiated, Isaac carried out. Abraham led, Isaac followed. Abraham commenced and Isaac continued. He pictures God the Son, ever obedient to the Father. Verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as a wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. The year here is 2,149 Anno Mundi, or from creation, when they were married. This verse here uses the term Syrian. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because some of your translations, when you're reading the Bible, will say Aramean. And you say, well, my Bible doesn't say the same thing. The location means exactly the same thing. The Hebrew word is Arami, which means Aramean. But the exact spot is Padan Aram, which is located in Syria. Padan means plowed field. And so this is the flatlands of Syria. And interestingly enough, Syria is just as much in the news today as it was then. It is a land of turmoil, 
It's a land of war and it's a land of death, which we see on the TV every single night, especially if you watch the BBC. They love to highlight what's going on in Syria. Verse 21, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Just like Sarah, she was barren for much of her life and even for 30 years after they entered the promised land, the land of Canaan, Rebekah is also barren and her barren condition is going to last for 19 years. Because of the inordinate amount of time without having a child, Isaac prays to Jehovah for his wife, Rebekah. For all we know, they could have started praying for a child the first year and it could have gone on for 19 more years. God works in his own timing and to meet his own purposes. Eventually though, the Lord granted the plea and Rebekah conceived. This long period between marriage and birth demonstrated to Isaac and to Rebekah, as it does to us, that this conception was not merely a natural occurrence, but it is a gift of God's grace. The structure of the Hebrew right here is worthy of note. When it says that Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, he uses the term lenochach ishto. And some scholars look at this particular uh this translation and they see that it mean, he, means that he either prayed with his wife or he prayed in the presence of his wife. And the reason why I bring that up is because if that's correct, it's something that we all ought to be considering to do with our own families. Do we just say our prayers alone? Do we read our Bible alone? Or do we participate with our wife or our children? Because the more we do these type of things, praying and reading our Bible with other people in our family, the more established we will become in our own faith along with our families. If we neglect to include God in our decisions between each other, we end up with trouble. We end up with fighting. We end up with, you know, ignoring each other, etc. But the family, the old cliche, it's absolutely true. The family that prays together stays together because people are communing with the Lord in each other's presence. But no matter how he prayed, whether it was with her or in her presence or whatever, both Abraham and Isaac are molded through the exercise of their faith and their prayer before they're blessed with children. In today's world, and I am a perfect example of this, we want everything and we want it right now. And we become impatient with even small delays. And anybody that knows me, like my mom here, will tell you that that is the truth. I am a very impatient person. However, God continues to work in each one of us in the way that he worked through these heroes of faith. Some of you have family members that don't know the Lord, such as me. I have family members that don't know the Lord and there you are praying for them. You may have family members that are in jail or family members that are lost in alcoholism or in drugs and your prayers continue and he is pleased to allow your prayers to continue. Eventually though, and according to his wisdom, a response is going to come. It may not be the response that we want, but it will come. Let's see how Jesus instructs us in this particular concept from Luke chapter 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart saying, there was a, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, she, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming, she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? 
He's telling us to wear God out. Wear out our blue jeans, if, at least. If we can't wear out God, at least wear out your knees in prayer to God, and he will respond. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do. We will never wear out God, but he will give us an answer. Verse 22, but the children struggled within her. Children are going to fight as children do, but this is a very unusual occurrence because they actually beat each other up in her womb. The Hebrew word is yithrosatsu, and these two were really punching each other and they were bruising each other. Mom was worried not only about their safety, but she was worried about her own safety as well. Verse 22 continues, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Mom's speech here in the Hebrew is in the imperfect sense. And so basically she is asking less about why is this happening to me than if I have to go through all of this trouble, why did I bother getting pregnant in the first place? And apparently I've understood that women that have their first uh, pregnancy will often ask this question, you know, why am I going through all this and is it worth all of it? But off to the Lord she goes to find out what the deal is. And from this verse, we can guess that there is now a fixed way of inquiring of the Lord for the family of God, something we haven't seen in the past in Genesis. It may have been to go to Abraham, who was the priest of the family. It may have been to go to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who was what, Genesis 13, I think. Or maybe they'd go off to Mount Moriah and pray in a specific place. However it was that she prayed to the Lord, she in fact does get an answer. And that leads us to our second and final thought today. And when I say final thought, I do not mean that this is going to be short and we're going to be out of here. This is going to go on and on and on. Divine election and predestination. Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. The natural order of family life is once again reversed as it has already been done several times in Genesis. The younger is being placed ahead of the elder. And thus we have seen before and now we see again the doctrine of divine election introduced into redemptive history. This doctrine will find its ultimate fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ and which Paul so clearly explains in the book of Romans and in the book of 1 Corinthians. Before they were even born, God elected the older to serve the younger. However, this serving and this subordination is not limited to the children. Rather, the verse says, two nations are in your womb. It is therefore speaking of both the immediate and the future. In this then, there is also a picture of the people of God, the elect, okay? And I want you to pay attention to that because I'm gonna bring it up again to make my final point today. It does not say two babies are in your womb. It says two nations are in your womb. And that makes all of the difference in the world about what I'm gonna to speak to you about today. I dare not tell you how much is in this single verse concerning the doctrines of the Bible, the foreknowledge of God and the confusion that results from what's being said to Rebecca right here. Seminaries have entire courses on the concepts arise from what the Lord tells her now and what later writers of the Bible are going to say about this one verse. What is being stated here has led to some of the most heated battles in all of church history since the very beginning. If you follow what a guy named John Calvin taught, you're gonna come here. If you wanna follow what John Wesley, the father of the Methodist tradition taught, you can come here. In the end, and of all of the countless arguments about theology, there is always one right answer. 
God is very clear, but we misunderstand. And the reason why I say that is because what I tell you today does not mean that what I'm telling you is right. You as an individual must pick up your Bible and you must check these things out because I'm going to give you my opinion on something and I'm going to contrast it with other people's opinions. But in the end, this is as important as anything that you will consider in all of your walk with the Lord all the days of your life is this one verse that we're looking at right here. Malachi speaks of these two children in his little book, four chapters right at the very end of the Old Testament, just before Matthew. He speaks about these two children before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in relation to the attitude of the people of Israel. Here's what he says. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And the Lord answers, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Once again, he says, Esau I have hated, and I would like you to understand he's speaking about the people of Esau, not Esau himself, because he says, I have laid waste his mountains and his heritage. So once again, I want you to understand it's speaking about a group of people and not an individual. That's very important to understand. Paul builds on the words to Rebecca and what Malachi just said, and he writes these words in Romans chapter 9. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the, children not, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or any evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. He quotes what I said what the Lord said to Rebekah, and then he says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And he quotes Malachi. Based on this, we find the doctrines of election and predestination. Paul actually speaks of predestination, however, in Romans chapter 8. And I want to read you that so you have a starting point for what I'm going to say to you. Here's what he says in Romans 8, starting in the 28th verse. Wonderful words if you have called on Jesus Christ to start with. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, meaning that God, before he created anything in the universe, foreknew people that he would save. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. That means that he made the choice that they would be saved, to be conformed to the image of his son. He foreknew that they would be conformed, and so he called them and he predestined them that he might be, Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, he is going to send his son into the world and he's not just going to have him living all alone in eternity. He's going to have many brethren with his son, Jesus Christ. All right. Moreover, whom he predestined, these people that he predestined to be saved, he justified. Justified means I accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and God says, not guilty. I've done all of these wicked things throughout my whole entire life. I've lied, I've cheated, I've done this and I've done that, and God has forgiven me. He has justified me. And anything that I'm going to do in the future, I am justified before God, not because of me, but because of Jesus Christ. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, and whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, one of you, raise your hand. Have you called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Any one person? Okay. You've called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Are you in the new Jerusalem in heaven right now? No. And yet God says that you are already there. What happens here 
is God's eternal mind seeing everything that is going to happen all the way through to your glorification. We need to keep that point in mind as well. He says, God foreknew certain things about the people of the world, and based on that, he predestined some of them to be conformed to the image of Jesus, just as he foreknew the destinies of the two children in Rebecca's womb. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a breakdown on four major views of predestination, okay? And I want to tell you this. I'm not going to give all of the views on predestination. There are subviews and subviews and subviews, and people believe all kinds of little things in churches all over the world. So if somebody's watching this on YouTube, I don't want anybody emailing me and saying to me, why didn't you address this view? We'd be here forever doing this. And the reason why I say this is because I just finished a 541-page, I think, commentary in the book of Revelation from a daily devotional that I do. And I posted it. My professor at the seminary, he was doing a course starting this month on Revelation. I said, if you need any notes, here's some for you to consider. And somebody saw that on his wall. He read, all he did was read the individual introduction to Revelation, which was just less than a page long. It was nothing. It was just giving general things about what is coming in Revelation. He didn't read any of my commentary, and yet he came and he barbecued me because I didn't take one of his pet peeves and address it. Then I told him, I might as well just quote the entire Bible and put that as my introduction to Revelation because that was, that's what you have to do. So please don't email me or, or post something about what I don't say. If you want to refute me, refute what I do say, okay? I'm going to use, in these four views, some very big words, and I don't want you to be worried. I'll do my very best to explain what each word means, which is correct, and why, at least as far as I believe it. And I'm going to give you some very simple concepts to help you through this. When a job came open at the Church of God, which is out on Fruitville Road in Sarasota, they, the pastor kind of blew it and the congregation started to fall apart and so they were looking for a pastor. And some of my friends, about 15 of them actually, attended that church and they emailed me and they said, hey, we need a pastor out here. Would you come and be our pastor? And I told them I couldn't. And I said, what they believe, I believe is faulty doctrine. And they said, well, why? What is it that they believe? And I said, well, the first thing is I have to be trained in their seminary, in their theology. And then they, I, I told them what their theology is. And I said, what I believe and what they believe in the church of God. And every single one of the people that I talked to, like say probably 15 of them, said exactly the same thing. They said, I believe what you believe. Well, my question is, then why don't you leave that church? Because you are only getting bad doctrine. This is important. Should you be a Methodist? Should you be a Roman Catholic? Should you be a, a Presbyterian? Should you be a Roman, uh, uh, you know, a, a Baptist? What should you be? And do you know what your church believes and why not? And as I said, the first things I ever did out here at Church on the Beach in the afternoon sermons a year ago was to give all of the doctrine that I could think of so people knew what I believed so that they can make a rational choice about whether they want to come out here or not or if they want to watch people watching on YouTube. Do they want to listen to me? And then I started with Genesis and I've been going very slowly through Genesis, 57 sermons now. But that is why I did that, is so people know, and there's a record of what I believe the Bible is trying to tell us. One thing is for sure, and it is found throughout the entire Bible, and it is summed up in five words from the book of Jonah, that teeny little four-chapter book right in the middle of the minor prophets. Jonah, the son of Amittai of Gath-Hefer, he says five words from inside the belly of a fish that set the entire doctrine of all of salvation, however you believe it works out. 
salvation is of the Lord. Within this thought is an entire debate about salvation, including election, which stems from God's words to Rebecca. And because of this, we need to look at the four major views that I'm going to give you today that people hold to. In order, they are supralapsarianism, infralapsarianism, sublapsarianism, and Wesleyanism. As I said, only one can be correct, and the one that I have always defended and the one that I will always defend is what I believe is correct. It is sublapsarianism. I'm going to explain to you the ones that I believe are wrong and why and who believes them. The first is supralapsarianism. Supra means above, laps is the fall of man, ism is doctrine. That's all it means. Above the fall of man is our doctrine. It says that election, God's election of people or predestination, Paul mentions, is logically prior to the decree to permit the fall of man. In other words, even before sin enters the picture, election is made for all people. This view is held by what we would call hyper-Calvinists, and it is also known as double predestination. I'm going to explain that right now. Because it happened before the fall of man, God chose everybody before the fall, before sin entered the picture, to either be saved or to be condemned. Double predestination. Single predestination means God chooses the saved people and he doesn't do anything about the unsaved people. But double predestination means that God created somebody in order to be condemned and go to hell. This is hyper-Calvinism. It is held by a very small, a radical, and a biblically unsound group of people. This view inevitably leads to judgmental egoists who feel that God loves them and he hates everybody else on earth. Before God predestined humanity, I'm sorry, because God predestined humanity, before he permitted the fall of man, he therefore elected for salvation, he elected for condemnation. He created them saved or unsaved. This is their state. They have no choice in the matter. This means that God provides and applies salvation only to those he has elected. This is called limited atonement. Remember that Facebook post I mentioned a while ago? Limited atonement. God selects certain people for salvation and other people he doesn't select. Now to explain this, so you understand this clearly, we're gonna use ducks in a river. God, and before I give these duck examples, same thing that I said earlier about you know challenging me on something, if the duck is blue instead of green, please don't come to me. These are just simple examples so that people can kind of package out what God is doing in human history, all right? It's a general. It's not an all-encompassing example, in other words. But here God is. He creates ducks. He creates a pond. He puts the ducks into the pond. But after the ducks enter the pond, there's a cataclysm. That's the fall of man, all right? And water starts draining from the pond, and it's heading in a river down towards a waterfall. When the ducks that he created for salvation come along, he grabs them and pulls them out of the water, whether they want it or not. And the ones that he created for condemnation, listen to this, he actually pushes them down the river and into the waterfall before they can get out. This is a mean God. He is an angry God. But this is what some people believe. Double, predestin double predestination means that God actually hates the non-elect, even though he created them. Within this doctrine is the concept that there is absolutely no reason to evangelize anyone 
Why would you bother telling anyone about Jesus or sending out missionaries? God chooses and that's that in his sovereign will cannot be thwarted. So if I don't need to tell somebody about Jesus because he's already elected them, then why would I be a preacher? Why would I be a missionary? Why would I give money to a church? It doesn't matter because God has already made the decision and his sovereign will cannot be thwarted. Double predestination is as close to ascribing evil to God as one can get. And I will go so far as to say that it does ascribe evil to God because God creates people that he is going to destroy and those people are wicked people. Therefore, he created wicked people before the fall. It ascribes evil to God. The second view is infralapsarianism. Infra, like infrared. It's below the spectrum infra and then after the fall. All right, this is their doctrine. The concept says that the decree of election, God choosing people to be saved, is logically after the decree to permit the fall. God creates, he allows the fall of man, and then he chooses who is going to be saved. Okay, this view is held by what I would call strong Calvinists. It is not double predestination. God created everything. He permitted the fall. Since then, he has and he will continue to elect some, but he's going to pass by others. He provides and he applies salvation only for the elect. This is limited atonement, and it's what I said. That guy on that Facebook post, this is his view right here. It is limited atonement. He chooses who will be saved, and they have no choice in the matter. R.C. Sproul, if you know who he is, I read his magazine every single day of my life. He's a Presbyterian minister in the middle of Florida. He's a very intelligent man. I'm not trying to slam him. He is in this category. This view holds to limited atonement, just like the first view. In both views, God loves only the elect in terms of salvation. And a problem with that arises immediately because God is love. He loves everyone equally. He loves you as much as he loves you, and he loves you as much as he loves Adolf Hitler. God's love does not increase, it does not decrease. God is love according to the Bible. That's just the way it is. God is, I am who I am. He doesn't love more all of a sudden or less all of a sudden. His other attributes come into play, but his love doesn't change. There's no increase, there's no decrease in his love for you. So let's go back to the ducks to understand this particular view. God creates the quiet pond and he creates the ducks. He puts the ducks in the pond, but after the ducks enter, we have a cataclysm, fall of man. The water starts draining from the pond. It goes down a river heading towards a waterfall. When the ones that he decides should be saved, he pulls them out of the water, whether they want it or not. The others, he simply allows to go down the river and off to destruction, okay? At least he doesn't push them down the river, but he also doesn't do anything to help them out of the river. They were simply not a part of his plan. This is not a hateful God, but I gotta tell you what, he is rather uncaring about the ducks he didn't elect, those poor, poor ducks. Like the first view, and they will dispute this, I want you to know this, there is no reason why someone would bother telling anybody about Jesus. There is no reason to send out missionaries. As I said, they're gonna dispute this, but it is the logical result of such a view. R.C. Sproul preaches and he gets paid for preaching. I don't know why he bothers, because if the elector or the elect and he has no choice in the matter, then how, if, if I have no choice in being elect, how much less choice does R.C. Sproul have in my election? So why is he even bothering to tell me anything about Jesus? Because he has no part in it if I have no part in it. Do you see the logic there? This, if God chooses us apart from our 
free will, then honestly, what is the point? Are God's plans going to be thwarted by R.C. Sproul going home and playing golf instead of preaching? Absolutely not. Also, proponents of this particular view would say that if it was intended for all to be saved, then all would be saved. And that's exactly what that post that I read you from Facebook said. Exactly. Because God's sovereign intentions must come about. And anybody would agree with that. It doesn't matter what view you hold. God is sovereign and his intentions, intentions must come about. Therefore, they will say that if it was intended for all to be saved, then all would be saved. And therefore, there is only salvation for the elect. But as I said, this is a false dilemma. The atonement of Jesus Christ is an offering. An offering implies acceptance. And it is intended to save all. But it only is applied to those who believe. Calvinism wrongly assumes that the atonement of Jesus Christ has only one purpose, and that is to procure salvation for the elect of God. But in fact, the book of Romans, chapter 1, Jesus' offering has another purpose, to reveal the righteousness of God in judgment. God sends his son to die in your place, and you turn him down. Even without the cross, the Bible says that we are condemned already. We're already heading to hell. How much more just is God when we turn down the cross in his offering of Jesus Christ's sacrifice? That is the purpose. It's not just to get me saved. It's to show the righteousness of God in my salvation and the righteousness of God in those who turn down his salvation. The result of the idea of limited atonement is that it denies that God really desires all of the people of the world to be saved. This is contrary, contrary to his omnibenevolence, his all-lovingness. And it is also contrary to the Bible itself, as I said already, where Peter writes that he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to a repentance and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So you understand this view more clearly. You need to consider the concept of free will. Do we freely choose Jesus Christ, or does God choose us apart from our will? The two options are known as monergism and synergism. Mono, okay, one, and the ergism part means regeneration. Does God regenerate us apart from our will, or do we have a will and he regenerates us because of that? Monergism teaches that regeneration is completely a result of God's work, and man has no part and no cooperation in it. It is salvation by what they call irresistible grace. God says, I'm going to save this person and I'm going to irresistibly draw him to me. And then I will believe. In other words, and this is what monergism is, you believe you are saved before you're saved. It is convoluted and it involves unclear thinking and a twisting of the Bible. Also, think about this. It actually usurps God's authority. If you have no choice in your salvation then how do you know you're saved? How can anyone make a claim that they are saved when they didn't have any part or anything to do with their salvation? In other words, you are speaking for God by claiming salvation at all. Now, of course, their answer is, I believed after God regenerated me, therefore I am saved. However, there are false gospels, and the Bible speaks of them. Go to Galatians chapter 1, and people believe them. There are people who believe wrongly and yet claim they are saved. And when they find out they're wrong, they change their belief, hopefully, in order to be saved. 
So when were they saved? When they believed correctly. God didn't irresistibly call somebody to a false gospel and then to a true gospel. He gave them the right reason to think it through. False gospels imply that there is a true gospel. And the spirit of the Antichrist implies that there is a true spirit of God. Belief must precede regeneration. And it does. This is what the Bible teaches. Your faith brings salvation. Finally, monergism denies free will. But free will is necessary because, it, 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 take it for love, for example. You want to love somebody and you don't have free will? Then it's forced love, and that is no love at all. God says, you're going to love me, and that's all there is to it. And that's what Calvinism ultimately leads to. Now, what I did, I read this every single day of my life. This is R.C. Sproul's Table Talk magazine. He's a very intelligent man. I like him very much, but I disagree with him on a few issues, and this is one of them. So I went this week as I was preparing this. I pulled out and just a couple things I highlighted out of just one of his, one of his things, and I want to read it to you, all right? The first one is, um, we do not worship Aristotle's unmoved mover. Now, you'd wonder, why would he even put something like that in there? Aristotle has nothing to do with our salvation and has nothing to do with the, the thing that they're talking about. And the reason why is because Aristotle comes up with some concepts which Christianity teaches, okay? In other words, we needed the classical Greek mind in order to understand what Jesus Christ has done. There's no doubt about that. That is why Jesus came in a Greek-speaking society, and Christianity bloomed from that, because God is using these great Greek minds to help us understand the complexity of what Jesus did. Hence, the New Testament is written in Greek, by the way. Anyway, his idea is we don't worship Aristotle's unmoved mover, okay? Aristotle said that here's God before anything, and we have motion in the universe, and things are working around. Well, God can't move, and yet everything moves. So he called him the unmoved mover. Well, that's exactly what we do. We worship a God that does not move. There's no movement in God. There's no change in God. He is without any need of this universe. He created from the power of his spoken word and things started moving when he didn't change. There's no change in God when there's change in the universe. So what he said here is just a sleight of hand in order to get you away from the truth of what the Bible teaches, okay? And I'm not saying R.C. specifically, the commentator, which is in R.C.'s magazine, all right? Then he goes on and he says, and he contradicts throughout every one of their devotionals. They contradict themselves when they write things like this. We are not robots who have been programmed to act and left to run on autopilot. Well, guess what? If God says you are going to be saved and you have no choice in it, then you're a robot that is on autopilot. That is the absolute way it is. And this goes on and it goes on and it goes on like this day after day because they have to rationalize the way the fact that they do not believe we have free will. And that's the only way to do it is to come up with these crazy statements. Here we go. I'm going to read you what they call Coram Deo. Every day at the end of the uh, thing, they have Coram Deo. It's the thought of the day. It means in the face of God, okay? Salvation is ultimately all of grace. No problem there because God elects only some to salvation. No problem there, but how did it happen? Did he say, you are elect and no choice, or did he say, come to me, and I say yes, and then I am elect because of that? He knew what I was going to do. So there's a dispute right there. Then he says, giving them the ability to trust him. I agree with that. The Bible does say that. Because God elects only some to salvation, I'm sorry, which is not ours by nature as Adam's fallen children. He says that it's not our, by our nature our ability to call on Jesus Christ. 
The Bible never says that. He just makes that up and puts it in here. It doesn't say anything about that in the entire Bible. Nevertheless, the elect of God prove their election when they repent and turn to Christ for salvation. So they repented and turned to Christ. Well, did that happen before? Did it happen after? That's the whole question. And they leave these dubious things hanging out there that don't mean anything. And then they say, if we don't have faith and repentance, we cannot presume that we are elect. As I said, then you're speaking for God. You're elect because there are people in 2 Peter 1, 9 that have forgotten that they are saved. And yet Peter calls them saved believers. So if they don't have that repentance and, uh, uh, what did he say, faith and repentance because they've forgotten that they're saved, then how can they be the elect? And yet Peter says they're the elect. This is very convoluted thinking and it all stems from the nature of man. He says we will have faith and repentance. How do you know? You are speaking for God once again. And I'll tell you, to give you a, a real life example of this, just so you know, there is a guy that we've already covered in Genesis, I think it's chapter five, his name is Enoch. It doesn't say anything about Enoch. It's just very little, one or two sentences. And it says that Enoch walked with God and he was no more because God took him away. And that's all it says. He walked with God. And I went to a doctor of theology in Calvinism one day on a website and I, I, I wasn't rude. I just asked him kind of a, a question. If this is true, and this is before the cross of Jesus Christ, then how did he walk with God if he doesn't have the ability? As they say, Adam, uh, it's not ours by nature, it's Adam's fallen children. How could he have done that? And what did he do? He sent this long cut and paste discourse about our regeneration before we're saved. Enoch was regenerated before God, he walked with God, and then God, in other words, God made him walk with him. The whole thing is convoluted, and he had to insert that into two sentences about Enoch, because there is no answer. Because, do you see this logic? So there you go. I just wanted you to understand what you were dealing with when you're dealing with Calvinism. Synergists, synergism, believe that we freely choose Christ and then we are regenerated to life. And guess what Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, and I, I mention these every single week. If you believe, you receive. The Holy Spirit is given after belief, not before. He's saying that you're regenerated, that Christ quickens your spirit, and then you believe, and then you get the Holy Spirit, but the Bible doesn't teach that. An argument against this, and I love to do this, I love to argue against myself to help myself think it through, the Bible says that we are dead in our sins, and that Jesus is the one who restores us to life. It does say that in the Bible. The argument is, how can a dead person choose life? R.C. Sproul says it this way, and he said it this way on Facebook this week. On his, um, I'm, all, I'm also signed up to Ligonier Ministry, so I get his daily stuff because I like the guy. But he says this, you have as much power to awaken yourself from spiritual death as a corpse has the power to awaken himself from physical death. Now, that's true in one sense, but it's, it's a category mistake. R.C. Sproul is making a category mistake because we are spiritually dead in our sins, according to the Bible. We are not dead beings. God has made us with the ability to reason, to choose, and to decline. And therefore, mixing these categories results in bad theology, such as monergism. If you don't understand this, go back to my sermon on free will on Genesis chapter 2, and I explain this. The Bible teaches what we would call anthropological hylomorphism. Big word, anthropological is the study of man. Hylomorph is the union of two things. We are a soul-body unity. Both Testaments, Old Testament and New, confirm this. Uh, what was his name? Samuel dies and his spirit comes up by the witch of Endor. 
in the New Testament, the same thing happens. We are soul, body, unity. The spirit of man is dead, but the spirit of man is tied to the soul. Paul, when he is speaking to saved believers, people that have already been given the Holy Spirit, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that when their body dies, their soul is naked. So even in the New Testament, we are soul, body, unity. The spirit of man is made alive when we call on Christ, even if the body dies later. This is eternal life, and it occurs the moment that we believe. We do not become a soul, body, spirit unity. Rather, it is our soul which is now spiritually alive. Adam's spirit died at the fall. Faith in Christ regenerates that spirit. As I said, the spirit of Antichrist that John speaks of actually confirms what I'm telling you here. We'll go on to our third concept, our third wrong concept. This is Wesleyanism. This is named after John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. This view says that God's election, choosing people for salvation, is based on his foreknowledge, but it is not necessarily in accord with his foreknowledge. In other words, God's decrees are conditional. God makes a choice and it doesn't really have to happen. This is the very beginning of error. I gotta tell you what, it goes all the way back to a guy named Jacob Arminius. So the Church of God, I said I couldn't preach there, they're Arminian, they're Wesleyan Arminian, all right? This guy lived in the 1500s. He, his view denies eternal security of believers. It reveals a God who changes and a God who makes mistakes. John Wesley could not decide which was right. Do I follow John Calvin or do I follow Jacob Arminius? And do you know how he made up his theology? This is the honest truth. He asked God for a sign and then he threw lots twice in order to get his theology. But I gotta tell you what, we do not get our theology from chance and happenstance. We get it from the Bible. John Wesley did not marry a woman because the lot said no, and he married his other wife because the lot said yes. This is the type of thinking that we're dealing with here. John Wesley, the Methodists, the Church of God, Mennonites, and others who believe this view are wrong. Like the previous view, they believe that God created all and then permitted the fall of man, and then he provides salvation for all believers. God knows who the elect are based on their foreseen faith. Charlie Garrett is someday going to believe, and so he is saved, and I'm predestined because of my choice. It's kind of what I believe, but there is a difference. Because of this faith, he applies salvation only to believers, but believers can lose their salvation. Here's a duck example. God creates the pond. He creates the river and the ducks, and same thing. You have the nice, quiet pond. There's a cataclysm. The ducks get into the river, and they're heading off towards a waterfall, right? As the ducks come by, what does he do? He leaves his perfect favorite duck on the shore and he's quacking for the other ducks to come out. He says, there's a waterfall up ahead. If you don't come out, you're gonna get quacked up. Some of the ducks decide that they wanna come out and not get quacked up. And some of them decide that they like the river. And I gotta tell you what, there are people in my family that like outside of the river and there are some in my family that wanna stay in the river and that's their choice. Those who come out though, and this is a fundamental distinction, can never know if they have upset the perfect duck and they have to go back in the river. There is never true safety. And in fact, these ducks can't really tell the river from the shore. They're kind of in this marshy area. The poor ducks spend the rest of their life trying to please a group of lower ducks that the perfect duck left behind. If this lower duck, who is a pastor, 
says that the ducks have been bad, off to the river you go again. Imagine being one of these poor, unsure, and ever-worried group of ducks. Poor ducks. Our final view is the correct view, according to me. Check for yourself. First, it makes sense from a philosophic standpoint, and God is the author of wisdom. Second, it makes sense from a moral standpoint. And guess what? All morality stems from the Creator. And third, it is the only view which is supported by the Bible. And it answers the question of why we fell in the first place, which is very, very important. It also answers where evil came from without ever ascribing evil to God. I explain this in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 sermons, so if you want, go back and watch those. Without this view, one is forever searching for where evil came from. This is a question, and my mom will testify to this, that Dr. Sproul and others must ask, and they do ask it all the time, and they can never find an answer to the question, whence comes evil? The idea is that if God created everything perfectly and man fell, then God must have somehow blown it when man fell. This is particularly true because if intent is sin, which Jesus clearly says it is, if I look at a woman with lust in my heart, I have committed adultery with her already. Intent is sin, according to the Bible. And if that's true, then that means, according to R.C. Sproul, he says, then Adam must have fallen before the fall. And what does that mean? He says Adam was perfect when he was created and he fell before the fall, but I can't ascribe evil to God. And so I remember him saying the exact moment that he came to this epiphany. He was playing tennis and he was about to hit the ball. And he said, all of a sudden I realized that whence comes evil because he can't answer this because he does not believe that man has free will. And free will is the only way of getting around the fact that there is evil in the world. It's the only way. God created us perfect. He created us without the knowledge of good and evil, and he gave us the choice. And we went over and we ate that fruit. The correct view is called sublapsarianism, below. God's order to provide salvation came before his order to elect the people of the world. God says, I am going to provide salvation for all of the world, and then I will elect the people of the world. And you know what? Re Revelation 13:8 confirms this. Behold, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. I will send my son to die, and that all who call on him will be saved. It provides unlimited atonement for everyone, potentially, but only for God's elect, actually. Like the previous two views, we believe that God created everything and then permitted the fall of man. He provides salvation for all people, but the elect of God are those who believe. God passes by those who do not believe based on their rejection of him. It is not that he doesn't care about them. It is that they don't care about him. This view applies salvation only to believers who cannot lose it. Yes, there is eternal security in the arms of Jesus Christ. A theological basis for this view is that God is, as I've said twice already, omnibenevolent. In other words, he loves all of the people of the world. Yes, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. There is no hatred of the person, and there is no active passing by people. He, excuse me, just swallowed wrong. He offers to all, and then the elect respond. He desires that all come to repentance for his unmerited salvation and favor. And this does not mean, as R.C. Sproul will try to tell you, that there is good in us. 
There is no good in us before we come to Christ. We see the good in him and we come to it. That's another of R.C.'s category mistakes. As far as our ducks are concerned, God creates the pond, he creates the river and the ducks and it's a nice quiet pond and there's, there's a cataclysm and we end up in the waterfall or in the river heading towards a waterfall. As the ducks come by, he leaves his perfect duck on the shore quacking for the ducks to come out and offering bread which will sustain them for all eternity. There's a waterfall up ahead. If you don't come out, you're going to get quacked up. Some of the ducks decide that they want to come out and some of them decide that they like the river. Those that do come out, if you like Star Trek, you'll like this. They're protected by the perfect duck. If they stray, it's not to the river because there's a force field around them and it will never allow them to go toward that terrible place again. The force field is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. God seals us with the Holy Spirit and we can never go there again. These imperfect ducks are saved from the river despite themselves. God was pleased that they believed and though they may have forgotten it, they may have been two years old and they called on Jesus and they spent the rest of their life having forgotten it, he never did. And I gotta tell you what, I know people that are saved that have forgotten it, that have simply walked away from the faith, but God has never forgotten that they called on Jesus Christ in their moment of desperation. They are eternally secure in the fold of this perfect duck, and this is despite the crummy pastors that come along to confuse the ducks that come behind him. The first two views hold for salvation only for the elect. The third view holds for salvation for believers, but they can lose it. The correct view, according to Charlie Garrett, check for yourself, holds to salvation for believers because it is offered to all and that when it is done, it is done. It is an accepted deal and salvation can never be lost. There is ample biblical support for both eternal salvation and for both eternal salvation and salvation being offered to all. Any verses in the Bible which appear to contradict this are taken out of context by theologically confused Christians. And I was not going to give any examples, but my mom insisted that I did. And because it went over another page, and I got a half a page and I don't like wasting paper, I'm giving you two examples. The first is from John 6:44. R.C. Sproul uses this all the time to support Calvinism. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And R.C. Sproul says, see, this proves that you must be drawn by the Father and you have no choice in the matter. It doesn't prove anything. In John 30, uh, 12, 32, that's the simplest refutation of this. It uses the exact same word for draw, and it says this, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Therefore, if you have two opposite thoughts going on from the same word, one says that everybody's drawn to Jesus and one says that only the Father draws to Jesus, then what do you need to do? You need to go back and you need to check the context. You cannot rip verses out of context and make up your theology. And that's what happens here. I will say before I go on that God is drawing all people to himself and the Father did draw the people that Jesus was speaking to through the scriptures which he had given them because they are the Jewish people. But these verses that R.C. or this one verse R.C. Sproul is quoting is explained in the previous chapter, chapter 5, all the way through until the verse that he cites. The difficulty is explained in the opposition of their will, their free will. Their love of honor, their love of the praise of men prevented them 
from believing in him. It was not a lack of power to do what they should. It was erroneous opinions, it was pride, it was obstinacy mixed with contempt for Jesus. All of these are based on free will. God didn't make them have contempt for Jesus. It is not God's forced will. They were not drawn by the Father because they exercised their opposition to Jesus of their own free will. And as I said, the Father was drawing them from the very beginning of creation with his words through the Jewish people. The second and maybe most often used verses to deny our ability to choose Jesus Christ freely come from Romans chapter 3. They're verses 11 and 12. Listen to what Paul writes. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after good. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Calvinists use these verses to say that no one seeks after God, period. But guess what Paul is doing here? He's quoting the Old Testament and he's speaking about one group of people. Paul expects that we are going to go and check the context of what he is quoting. This is Psalm 14, one he quotes, and it's also Psalm 53, 53 verse one. And they both say exactly the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then this verse comes in line. He is speaking about atheists, people that say that there is no God. In fact, the very person that wrote the Psalm was seeking after God, his name is David. And therefore, it would be a lie that Paul wrote if, the, if what he said was applied the way that the Calvinists apply it, because David was seeking after God. And I'll tell you something else. Muslims are seeking after God. Mormons are seeking after God. Hindus and Buddhists are seeking after God. They're just doing it wrong. After all, wasted faith is what, uh, I'm sorry, misdirecting our faith is wasted faith. And that's what sends us to hell. People are seeking after God. He's speaking specifically about one group of people, the atheist. So we can't use that verse as a text for saying that nobody seeks after God. It's simply wrong. Now the view that I pr propose to you, philosophically, must be true. God does not think sequentially. And I want you to think about this. There are two types of sequential thinking I'd like you to think about. One is dicursive thinking and the other is syllogistic thinking. Syllogism is making an argument, this, this, therefore, this. Charlie is ugly, Charlie is a boring teacher, therefore today I am going to hate today's sermon, okay? This, this, therefore, this. It's things going in an order. That is syllogistic thinking. But we also have dicursive thinking. Gee, Charlie is a boring preacher. Gee, Charlie's not wearing shoes today. Oh, look at the bird over there. You're just random thoughts. Both of these thoughts, though, are in sequence. They're happening in time. But God isn't in time. And so what I'm telling you must be true based on the nature of God. All of God's thoughts before he created are immediate and intuitive. Despite this, he wills things to happen in a certain temporal sequence. In other words, there's no change in God. He's outside of time, but he created time for our benefit. And we are living in what he created. Everything within this bubble is already known to God, even though it is not known to us. So his sequence of events are as the Bible describes. He creates. Within his creation, he creates man before the fall. And then he allows man to fall based on man's free will. And after that comes an offer of salvation. If accepted, God seals the believer with the Holy Spirit. This is how it works in temporal time. 
It's not how it works in his mind. Everything happens at once in his mind. According to Ephesians 1.13, which I quoted a minute ago, it must be true because it says, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it must be an eternal decision. Salvation is according to the pleasure of his will. It is not independent of his will as Wesleyanism teaches. Yes, you can lose your salvation. It doesn't work that way. He sealed you and therefore it is. The error of Calvinism and the error of Wesleyanism both fall, both lie in a false understanding of the sequence of events pertaining to salvation. And that misunderstanding is based on a misunderstanding of the nature of man. What God says to Rebecca about the two children in her womb is key to explaining what Paul is telling us in Romans. It, demonstrate that, it demonstrates that God does not predestine some to eternal happiness and some to torture regardless of their free will. This is what the first two views, hyper-Calvinism and strong Calvinism, believe, and it is appalling in its ramifications. It demonstrates either a malicious God or an uncaring God. Rather, there is a bestowing of opportunity for knowing and doing upon some men which is greater than others. And I'll explain that. According to his wisdom, without regard to our merits, he bestows upon us life, time, and place. Charlie Garrett was born right down the road on 18 August of 1964 in Sarasota, Florida. And I did nothing to merit that. And that is his bestowing upon me his grace so that I would seek him out. Some people are born in different places and they don't have that opportunity. It doesn't demonstrate an uncaring God. It shows the wisdom of God. So I have my time, my place, and my position in here. And maybe I was created for a noble purpose or maybe an ignoble purpose. Everybody is placed according to his wisdom in time and space. All who have opportunity to hear are given the message and they are given the opportunity as well to respond to that message. In substantiation of all of this, and remember at the very beginning of this sermon, I said I was going to bring in the fact that it says two nations are in your womb. It doesn't say two babies are in your womb. All we need to do is look at the future of the people that he's speaking to, who are the Israelites, the sons of Jacob, and the Edomites, the sons of Esau. All we need to do is look at them to understand exactly the concept of predestination. These are the people that Malachi spoke of and then Paul confirmed about in the book of Romans. After being subjected to the Israelites, these are the Edomites, and it says the older shall serve the younger, and they did. They were subjected to the Israelites. Guess what happened to the Edomite society? They were assimilated into Israel. They became a part of the same group of people. All right? When that happened, they were living at the time of Jesus Christ. And guess what they did? They nailed him to the cross. And so they all went into exile around the world, just as the Bible said would happen 2,000 years ago. Just the Bible predicted these things. And then, likewise, the Bible predicted that all of those people would be regathered. And sure enough, what happened on 14 May of 1948? They were regathered into the land of Israel. And both Testaments, old and new, says that someday they will call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it says when they do, all Israel will be saved. This includes the Edomite people who were assimilated into the Israelite people. And even more than that are the Jews who have accepted Jesus Christ since the first century dispersion, okay? And they continue to do so today. And if you don't believe that, all you need to do is 
email Sergio, the guy that used to be out at church on the beach until he went to uh, Atlanta. He did all of the video work and he's a Jew and he accepted Jesus Christ. And so this proves that this must be true and that Calvinism and Wesleyanism are wrong in what's happened. These people, these Jewish people around the world during the dispersion were given the same opportunity at salvation as anyone else who comes from any of the lines of the sons of Adam. Were this verse here to have said two babies are in your womb and two children will be separated from your body. One child will be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Then people in Calvinism might have some type of argument for their view. But this verse doesn't say that at all. It says two nations are in your womb and two peoples are separated from your body. One people will be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And because it does, we need to remember that every single word of God is pure and it is intended to lead us to a right understanding of who he is and what he desires for us as his creatures. There is only one option to the ducks in the river. God is calling out to them and he allows them the choice of coming to its banks. And once they are there, he will never allow them to suffer the possibility of destruction again. So concerning the sufficiency of atonement, we are saved by the grace of God and we continue in that salvation forever. Concerning the scope of atonement, it is, is it limited or is it unlimited? The answer is both. It is unlimited atonement potential, limited atonement actual. Jesus Christ died for all people and the entire Bible supports this. He tasted death for every single human being but not all are saved. Only those who accept his gift. And the Bible calls Jesus Christ a gift many times. And if I force a gift on somebody, it ain't no gift. It is a gift, we must receive it. And so I wanna take just two more minutes of your time and I wanna to explain to you how you can, how you can be a part of what God is doing and was prophesied by God in the womb of a child with two babies that leads to how we can understand who God is. God created everything and he allowed man the choice of doing something that he was told not to do. He gave them free will and man exercised that. And when man did, sin entered the world and sin has been in the world ever since. And we know this because every one of us has children or every one of us that has children, I should say, knows that we do not have to teach our children to do wrong. They instinctively know to do wrong. It's doing right that we have to train into them. And they do wrong right from the beginning and they tell that little lie and that one little lie separates them eternally, eternally from an infinitely holy God. You cannot go back before your sin and he is outside of time and therefore you are infinitely separated from him. But worse than that, we can't go back before what Adam did. And so what did God do? He sent his son, came out of eternity. He united with humanity in the womb of a virgin and he lived the perfect life that we could not live. He didn't inherit Adam's sin because he came from a woman, but not from a man, and sin is transferred through the man. And so he is the God-man, perfect in all ways and yet fully human. And he never violated the law, and at the end of fulfilling the law on our behalf, which we can't do, he gave his life up as a sacrifice of atonement. And when he did that, he can now reach out his infinite hand and touch the infinite Father that we can't go back to. And he can put his finite hand right on the head of any person here who has never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he can say, he says, I can make it all right between you and my dad. And I will do it if you will simply believe. That's all that he wants is just faith. Faith. 
that he is sufficient to reconcile you to this glorious God who allows us free will. So if you've never taken the time to simply ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to lead you to a place that is far better than where we are now, the Bible says it's already done in his mind. We are already glorified and you can be a part of that today by simply calling out to Jesus in faith. Forgive me of my sins. You are my Lord. I believe that God raised you from the dead and the Bible says you will be saved. I hope you all will make that choice and I have a closing verse for you to today as I do every single week. I would like you to listen very carefully to the closing verse. It's one you've heard many, many times in your life and see if you can find Calvinism anywhere in this verse. It's from the book of John. It's from the third chapter of John, maybe the 16th verse. For God so loved the world and the world here is the word cosmos. He's speaking specifically of the people of the world. It does not say God so loved the elect. It says he loved the world that he gave his only, he gave, guess what? That's a gift. He gave and he cannot force that on us or it is not a gift. For God so loved all of the people of the world, the cosmos, he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, it doesn't say that God gave for the elect so that the elect would believe in him. It says whoever believes in him and then they are elect. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, you must voluntarily choose his good gift. All right, next week we're going to talk about Genesis 25, 24 through 34. It won't be nearly as long. It's called Heaven's Riches for a Meal. Esau barters away all of his inheritance for one meal. And guess what? I will make the logical argument that we must barter away our earthly existence for one meal as well. So stand by for that. Here's our weekly poem and then we'll have communion and we'll be done. This is called God's Grace, Our Choice. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac into the line of the promised one. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram. The sister of Laban, the Syrian, became his spouse for life. And so she became the daughter-in-law of Abraham. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah conceived, bearing in her womb new life. But after a while in her womb, there was difficulty. The children struggled together within her and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord and there she pled. It's because she knew something was amiss. And the Lord said to her in a striking prophecy, words that prove he is in control of all history. Two nations are in your womb as a mother. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger, you see. And thus we have the doctrine of divine election. And we can see that God predestines all according to his will. In each person, he understands their future selection of whether we will choose heaven or we choose hell. He allows us the choice and yet in advance he knows what we will do about his son, Jesus. But once the choice is made, his child he hallows and thus his grace is poured out on undeserving us. What a great and awesome Lord who came to save us from a certain pit of hell and to understand his truth, we have his word and in it of his grace and love and mercy, it does tell. Thank you, God, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Thank you 
for the saving grace he bestows upon us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do love all the people of the world and thank you that you offer us the choice of choosing you or rejecting you, proving that you love us enough to do that. I just thank you. I, I pray that everybody here has heard something that has touched their heart today and that they will carry with them. And not only that, that they will go back and they will listen to the other doctrines and teachers of those doctrines to ensure that what I have said today is either correct or wrong and they will find out their future in whatever is according to your word and not according to the word of a man. Lord, please let this happen, that these people will be knowledgeable and instructed people of God who are willing to follow you to the very end of the earth and to tell others about your goodness. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We anticipate a wonderful week ahead, and we look forward to it with our eyes fixed on Jesus and our hearts as well, and even our thoughts. All glory to the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. <sighs> Thank you.